Hello and welcome to The Nod, a mindful motorcycle podcast. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. It just sounds so bloody serious. <laughs> just give him a chance. Okay, okay? fine. Have a good other Another go. episode, another... <laughs> another catastrophe of a start. Great. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I am Ben Bowers, and I'm joined by the absolute rogue who is Anthony Partridge. Legend, you mean? Legend. That too. And adventurer, bon viveur, man about town, Charlie Borman. Last time it was Broken Twig, yeah. I'm feeling good this episode. (laughs) Between us, we've more than enough stories of adversity and adventure to fill the season. And whilst we dive into these, we will also be joined by guests from the wide world of biking and beyond to explore their passions for two wheels and their experiences on and off bikes. As we venture through the rich world of motorcycle subculture, we will delve into themes of well-being and mental health as we look to normalise and empower conversations and action around mental health. Last week's episode was all about us. No, it was all about Charlie. By way of introduction, but for this week's episode, we welcome our first proper guest. We decided to go all in on this one. We are overjoyed and slightly in awe to be joined by a man who bears one of the most famous family names in motor racing history, Damon Hill. Well, I, actually, the, I yes, it is. My name is Damon, but the Hill name is the is the family name, if you like. So, you're, yeah, I bear one of the most famous. But is the family name is not Damon Hill? Is the famous fa- so technicality? Yeah, that's that's okay. basically it, welcome to my world. I am a pedant. <laughs> I well, like to nitpick. I'm that, a Virgo, that, that, and basically <laughs> I pull everything apart. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, so you're right. Yeah, well, that but ended better than I thought it was going to. Thought you were going to tell me your name wasn't actually Damon Hill after all. You got me there. I know. I was just thinking. Oh, I wonder where this is going. I've always known him as spoiler alert. Our first exclusive: Damon Hill's name's not actually Damon Hill. After all, and he's a plumber, not not a race car driver. Plumber from Bognor Regis. (laughs) (laughs) He just made up this picture association with his dad as a child. He's Um, a lookalike. Damon, this is a motorcycle podcast, so we could easily skip the big intro about your car racing exploits, um, but that might be slightly remiss of us. Um, So, for those listeners born after 1996. Which is probably probably a few. Well, hopefully a few. Hopefully we're appealing to a broad demographic. I think the population of the planet's doubled in that time, isn't it? Yeah. Do you know when you're when you're looking down for your date of birth on a on a on something you hope you're filling in, and you have to keep scrolling, scrolling scrolling. You start getting anxious because you think, will it go back far enough? Exactly. (laughs) And you think, God, sixty. Oh, thank God, sixty-six. And then you go a bit further because you think, blimey, there are people who are older than me. Actually, that's good. So it goes back to nineteen twenty. At least they're still. Yeah. Now, Damon. Uh, you won, you don't have to answer these, these are not questions, these are just statements of fact, but as you said, you're a pedant, and I might have, you know, I've Googled it, so it could be wrong. But let's start, see how we go, pull me up where necessary. Uh, you won the 1996 Formula One World Championship for Williams. Correct. Beating a young German by the name of Michael Schumacher. Yeah, um, yeah. It was a rivalry that was packed full of controversy and niggle. Mm. And lit up F1 in the late 90s. Son of Formula One world champion Graham Hill. In fact, you were the first father-son combo to win an F1 race, let alone win the championship. Yeah, basically I was blazing a trail there for the sons of, all daughters of. Yeah. Yeah. It's not not easy being the son or daughter of, is it? 
really. Well, what would you know about that? I don't know. Charlie? I have no idea. Sir Bullman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when are you getting nated? Yeah, it, well, doesn't, it doesn't follow it doesn't, the line, it does it? Doesn't yeah. follow the line, no. sadly. <laughs> anyway, you've you've turned this intro into something about you already, Charlie. So well done. <laughs> well done. Uh, a late starter in car racing at twenty six. Um, this is where it gets interesting, though. So uh, you didn't enter F1 until you were 31. Yeah. Very late starter. Yeah. Despite this, you went on to start 100. This is a really boring pin. Uh, 115 GPs. Oh, yes. You won 22 yeah. uh, with 42 podiums and 20 pole positions. Wow. It's not bad going. And three wins in your first season. And, of course, well. the World Championship. Yep. Yeah. You were third place in your rookie year behind some blokes called Prost and Senna. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. Second in your second year having been taken out by some bloke called Schumacher in the last race. Yeah. Second again in 95 before winning the title in 96 and emulating your father, who tragically died in a plane crash when you were 15. Yeah, 1975, yeah. But before going anywhere near race cars, you were a biker Mm -hmm. and started your racing career on two wheels. Yeah. Mm. You know, I don't think I was ever conscious of motorbikes until... Some guys had um, a little monkey bike at Silverstone. So I used to go with my dad to races and you'd knock about. And it was, frankly, it's boring because you'd be there for days on end and it went on and you couldn't see what was going on. They didn't have TV like we have now. So I used to hang around not knowing really what was happening and could hear cars going around and stuff. But So I'd play in the fields in Silverstone and there were these two guys who had a, a little Honda monkey bike. And they just said, do you want to go? I would, well, yeah, why not? You know, so I just jumped on and then just twisted the grip and off it went. And that was it. A little light bulb just went off in my head. Just thought, this is amazing, you know. And from then on, I just pestered my dad to get... Um, forget pedalling. Yeah, forget all that <laughs> pedalling. You know, I, 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 did a, I did quite a bit of pedalling. I, mean, I like my bicycle. But once you experience that thing taking off just by twisting the, the throttle, it's, it was extraordinary. The, you know, definitely instant... Experience, but but I've got pictures of my grandma, who my granddad never drove a car in his life or any vehicle, but my grandma rode a motorbike. I've got some pictures of her in the 1920s, wow. her and her friend oh, with jodhpurs cool. so on. The yeah, and she she had gauntlets on, and you know, and I don't know what it was, what bike it was. I can't really work it out from the picture, but you know, so she. It's possible that it gets passed down, some sort of genetic memory or something gets passed through. Because certainly it was a light bulb moment. I can yeah. remember that moment. And was that an opportunity for freedom when you were sort of stuck at F1 races? And Charlie spoke in the last episode about his sort of early days of being stuck in Ireland and a bike was, was that, was that thing? opportunity yeah. to yeah, get so away. Yeah, it led to that. No, my, led to that yeah. my first bike was a monkey bike as well. And uh, uh, Jason Connery made me push the monkey bike for hours to get it started. Push. And then got it going and then I had a go and I went I remember going past my father being really proud that I was riding this motorbike and as I went past him he leaned over and he grabbed me by the hair and pulled me off the bike <laughs> and I was hanging there angry it's like what are you doing and then and then I looked at him and looked at my bike which wrapped itself into a barbed wire fence <laughs> so he saved your life saved my life uh, anyway I was 11 I, sp- I suppose so and how old were you when you first got on the motorbike yeah 7 I think so I was. a bit younger yeah, yeah. But, I um, was 11 when I, uh, my, my first bike was 11 as well. And you don't have any concept of what can go wrong. No, no, there's all. no fear you know, at so all. You know, you, you, know you think I mean? you're evil can evil and you, yeah. know, you can leap over buses and stuff and you just, so yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a way of entertaining myself, but my dad also did scrambling as well. So he started his career, in fact, he broke his leg badly on a motorbike, 
but that was on another. They hit the back of a car or something in some fog back in the in the 50s sometime. And he did some motocross as well before he took up car racing. I know that when you're running dirt bikes and, and stuff like that, if you go into MotoGP and racing motorbikes, that it's a, it's a, it has a real help. It really helps you as a rider. Do you think your experiences as, as racing bikes and doing dirt bikes helped your driving? I think anything that's a, got an engine and requires you to use your balance and feel for grip. Because, I mean, a lot of the stuff you did when you, you know, we're all pretty much the same, probably rode off-road, you know, yeah. off-road in the mud and, and trials riding and stuff. You're trying to go up a slippery hill, mm. you know, and trying to it's find the traction. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's all about throttle control. That gives you that consciousness of, of what is required when you when you get to... I mean, I always thought I was very good in the wet in car racing, mm. and, I, I, and I'm put it down to the fact that when I rode a TZ350, the contact patch is tiny and the power is quite peaky. It's quite a lot of power. Mm. So you're really alert to when you're going to break traction or when that point at which the traction is is starting to give up. Yeah. I'm sure that that helps when you get into any vehicle where you're basically pushing the limits. Mm. Did you enjoy the the, the TZ350? Yeah. yeah. Or you raced that, right? Yeah, I've, I, so I won the champion of brands on the TZ. Because you raced, years, so. you also raced a Z500, did you not? I, I started with production. So, no. um, I mean, one of my first jobs was, was dispatch, work, dispatch work around London. So I had a... Um, That's where all the hooligans start. I used to ride my bike to school. And then when I left school, I went down to Brands Hatch and did the racing school. And they had 404s or something, converted 404s. And then I thought, well, I'm going to go racing. And I'd, I'd bought a... CB500 for, and I started production racing on that, um, but it wasn't... But you used to, you used to ride to the race? No, no, I put it on no, my, on... my mum's... I borrowed my mum's Ford oh, Fiesta, 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 and she had a trailer. And trailer, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I like did how do... your mum had a trailer. Yeah, <laughs> you, well, I mean, I, it was my trailer. No, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. Someone, someone donated someone me a trailer. But, but um, no, you're right. I did actually do the first couple of races, I actually rode the, the thing down there. Um, with novice plates and an orange jacket, you know, and just put the numbers oh, on. God, you want to get rid and of those bibs, don't you? You do. I mean, yeah, as, oh, quick as, you can. as quick as you can. But, oh. um, but then very quickly I wanted to enter a championship. So the Kawasaki series, you could either ride a um, KH350, mm. that just basically the smoke that came yeah. out of the start of one of those races, you just couldn't believe, you couldn't see any bikes at yeah, all. Yeah. You know. um, and it, so, didn't you have to start the bike up? Yeah. In in those days, yeah, they had so a, it was, so it was, a, it was a dead engine. No, it was pretty, yeah, it was a dead engine start. But of course, the Z five hundred had an electric start. Yeah, so you literally you sit there, and when the guy drops a flag, you press a button. But all the guys in the three fifty clocks were kicking. <laughs> had to use a kickstart. But um, but the TZ, you had to push start. Mm-hmm. And so for basically, my first few years racing the TZ or two fifty, I had two TZ two fifty as well. I never got the bloody thing started. So. You know, they'd all gone and there'd be, there'd be Hill at the back there still paddling away. And eventually my heart rate was about 250 and I couldn't push anymore. And they'd kind of flag me off the track and go, time to go home, Mr. Hill. So it was completely futile. And so I got these electron carburetors. Yeah. And the thing started on the first bump. And that was it. After that, I just, I couldn't believe it. I, one bump, two paddles, one bump, fires up, and I'm in the lead of the blooming race. I've never been there before. Mm. I've been, you know... Uh, they'd all gone by the time I normally got my bike yeah, started, yeah. <laughs> but now I'm I'm leading, and that was simply because I changed from those. Um, I think Makuni carburetors were mm. one that standard fitting, but, and they were just I could never get the damn thing started. Because you led quite a lot of races once you once you got the starts, and 
I racing won every bikes. bike race. You, I did. you won every bike race you did, yeah. which is quite quite phenomenal. Well, it really, is, it is. I mean, it was literally it was. And after a bit, I started to think, well, maybe my bikes is something funny about my bike. And one day, I turned up for the race. I was being sponsored by John Webb, who owned Brands Hatch at the time could see that it would be a good idea if I did well. So he'd give me a bit of sponsorship. So he actually said Brands Hatch on my bike and stuff like that. Anyway, I went and told him because my bike seized up uh, one morning and I went up to him and said, look, I can't race today, John, because um, bike seized up. And he said, um, so he went to the lady behind the bar and said, Doris, or whatever your name was, <clears throat> opened the till up, got Doris to take 200 quid out of the till, gave it to me and said, go and find a bike and race that one. And, and he said... <laughs> And don't try anything funny because I'm going to check to see whether they get the money. <laughs> In other words, he thought I was going to trouser 100 and then go and get it. <laughs> and keep 100. <laughs> Which is what was exactly going through your mind. It was well. not, honestly. <laughs> I'm not, actually, I'm not that smart. So, so I went off with me uh, with cash in my sweaty hands and I had to go around the paddock to try and find another bike. And what, to convince someone to, to actually yeah, to give, up their, give their bike? To, yeah, to give up their race weekend and say, OK, you ride it instead. So eventually I found someone who goes, yeah, right, I'll have the 200 quid and you can have my bike. And I rode this guy's bike and I won on that one. <laughs> and I suddenly thought, oh, my God, it's not the bike. It's me. Yeah. And it I'm was quick. like a real light bulb, another light bulb moment where you suddenly go, yeah. you kind of, all that doubt, you know, that there's some sort of something going wrong. How, how winning, old yeah. were you this time? Sorry. Well, now I was about 95. No, about, um, <laughs> what was I? Um, 22, 3. Okay. Yeah. 23. But do you think... So not that young, you know, no, really. You no, know, no, no, in, in, yeah. in the scheme of yeah. the way it is what, all now, yeah. you know, they're, they're all young. But, uh, sorry, but but so so do you think, you know, having led all those races, and I know you did you did Formula 2 or Formula... Well, I can't remember which it was before you got into Formula 1. Well, about, um, about the time I was winning in that, along came the opportunity with cars, and so I started, yeah. at one point, I was started to do Formula Ford. Formula Ford. Start, but, yeah. but when you were in the in the lead, because of leading so often on motorbikes, yeah. did that help you? you because need, it is no, tough being uh, first. You've got to, I mean, everyone who is in Formula One have, has won a lot of races. You know, they won it in karting, and they, so being in the lead is, at first it's a shock to the system. You know, I'm sure that some people just immediately find it's okay, but I spent, if you spend a lot of time following other people, and then suddenly you've got no one to follow because you're the guy being chased. Mm. It's a whole different universe, you know, because you have to set the pace for everyone else. It's a completely different... Let me see. It's it, What I'm saying is that if someone says, look, there's a bike out there and you, you try and follow it, then it's easy. You, try, mm. you just mm. put all your energy into trying to catch the guy. Yeah. But then... When you pass them, then what do you do? And you see it yeah, quite a lot with people yeah. who, who've got great ability and then they suddenly get in the lead of something and they and you can see they all kind of fall apart. Yeah, yeah. You know, because it's it's now you has who have to find this limit that is not now measurable, tangible, or kind of um you're not just copying someone. Yeah, yeah. You that are setting the decision. And that's yourself. a whole different yeah. thing. So yeah, definitely experience of leading and winning. And that feeling of really someone important. someone just on behind your shadow you. yeah. behind you. On a bike it's harder because yeah. you don't have mirrors and, and but you can you can often hear you can hear you can, hear you can, you can almost feel it. You can almost feel it. Yeah. But, but when I first got into the lead of a race at Brands, I'd actually had a blazing row with Georgie, who I'm still married to, um, but I wasn't at the time. But anyway, who's absolutely I, lovely, by the way. lovely, lovely yeah, woman. Much nicer. Only than she wasn't on. too impressed with me getting up that early to go racing at Brands, and so we had a little bit of disagreement over whether she was coming or not. So I, <laughs> I went down to Brands in a bit of a thick funk, whatever it's called, 
And I think I put all my energy into this, you know, and I suddenly found myself in the lead. And I didn't look, you know, that you were just talking about mirrors and looking back, but actually I just never wanted to look back. I never looked back the whole mm. race. I just, I'm not looking behind me. Well, you're not going that way. I'm not going that way. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. It's a very good point. And actually, that's quite profound. You know, it's like, it's like, like it. don't look down. That's you know. about as deep as Ants yeah, ever going to get, get on this podcast, yeah. I think. There's, there's an invisible guy or girl who's in front of you, mm. and you've got to catch them. So you kind of create, you start playing these games, mental games. So it got to the point where, like, in the if you get to the end of a Grand Prix, the first blooming couple of laps are a bit chaotic and then you settle in and then before you know it you've done 50 laps but you've still got another 20 laps to go and then they give you like 10 laps to go and you kind of go part of your brain's going oh good it's only 10 laps to go and then that 10 laps will take forever yeah, yeah. so we what i used to do was instead of pretending it was 10 laps or realizing it was 10 laps i'd say well, i'd just go back to where it was in the middle of the race whereby you took another 40 laps to do mm. so you just don't get out of that state of concentration so you trick your brain you know, just keep on doing what you're doing. Um, That's but, exactly what I do in, in, in the gym. When yeah. I'm doing reps of 10, <laughs> yeah. I go to five, and then, and then I think, okay, I've got to just do three, and then I've only got two left. Yeah. What was it that made you want to race bikes initially? I'd seen a lot of car racing, and I've, it had never really floated my boat, to be honest. And I don't know whether it's because that world in, at the time was quite dark to, to be honest, there was a lot of guys got killed. It was, it was, there was something mm. an edge to it. You know, it wasn't very pleasant, you know, and the way they died was they, they usually burned to death, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's kind of horrific, you know, whereas you see bike crashes and you kind of go, the guy's broken his leg. Oh, well, not nice, but, you know, people did get killed in, on bikes, but generally they just fell off and got hurt, you know? Mm. Um, so I th I'm sure that there was an element of it, the prospect of sitting in a, you know, petrol bomb. Um, it's funny. It's funny you say that because like you, you think like for myself. You, you think I always think if I'm going around the track in a car, I always think to myself that if I lose traction, I'm just going to spin out and I'm in a cage, so I'm safer than than on a bike. If I lose traction on a bike, I'm either low siding or I'm high siding. Yeah, you know what I mean, it's going to end yeah. badly. Yeah. Um, so um, obviously nowhere near the level of mm. of you, but but it's it's quite funny to no think. Way, no. no. Not well, even hey, close. hey, hey, you never know. <laughs> but it's the principles. <laughs> but the but, principles, but to, yeah. to think of, of, of that, a car being more dangerous than a bike, and thinking, yeah. thinking that, okay, I'm going to go to do the safer thing. I'm going to go ride a motorcycle because I don't want to die in a fiery, yeah. <laughs> in a petrol bomb. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I, yeah, well, I think yeah. that's, but that says, that says more about how things have evolved. It's progressed, now, of course. You know, yeah, because yeah. obviously now car racing is way safer. Safe. You're protected much better now than yeah, you yeah. ever were. I mean, they were just made of aluminium in those days. Yeah. And and now they're made of carbon fibre and they got survival cells and all sorts. So, you know, it is it, it is much more dangerous <laughs> and you're going to get much more hurt on a motorbike. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. I think they're, they're, yeah. They've, they've changed positions again. You got into it because it was fun. Yeah. Well, you are quite competitive, though. It stands to reason that I'm competitive. I, you know, if I do something, I, I take pride in doing it well. I want to do it well. And how do you measure that? You know, it's measured against other people you compete with. So, yeah, for sure. You know, I'm sensible enough to realise I've got abilities in some areas and not in others. But um, with the bike racing, I, to answer your question, why, do I, why did I do it? It was... It was to do well at it, but it was also because I loved it as a as a discipline, you know, mm. as a as an experience in its in and of itself. It was good, but yeah, little part of me wanted to be Barry Sheen, you know. But I think I, 
Uh, the car thing came along just at the moment where I was starting to realise this. And, you know, I'm not going to be Barry Sheen. Well, there, yeah. was a, there was a quote from Rob McDonnell, who was a motorcycle news reporter at mm. the time, saying of Damon, he didn't really look destined for great things on two wheels. Yeah, well, I've got one similar to that about cars as well. About <laughs> <four wheels. laughs> didn't, look didn't look destined for great things on car on four wheels either. Well, then they were wrong on both counts, weren't yeah. they? Someone said it was, if it's, if it's a motorbike, it's 80% rider's influence. And if you're in a racing car, it's the other way around, that your influence is not as, as important as... No, I mean, the difference between... A good guy in, in our sport and someone who's not so good is is measured in tenths of a second, but which, which mm. is the driver's ability. Yeah. But you know, to get within you know a second of a, a good guy in Formula One is not that difficult if you're if you're quite good. But I mean, to get within a second of the top guys in MotoGP could be like really you yeah, know yeah. you have to be exceptionally brilliant. Don't yeah. You? Yeah, you do. It's 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 interesting. I love when when you did last year. You did that piece on what your view is like. Yes, the, in a car or in Qatar, on a on in Qatar or yeah, on a motorcycle. Because in Qatar they race MotoGP in Qatar. So cars hadn't been Formula One hadn't been to Qatar, so they 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 had a race for the first time, and, mm. and it was usually known for the for the bikes. So um, we're doing the track walk beforehand, and I'm trying to explain what it might look like if you were on a motorbike, which was totally relevant to the people watching because actually they're only watching for cars but anyway yeah. I thought I'd do it anyway no I, I like it <laughs> I did read that it was your your mum that actually turned you to cars saying that she thought bikes were too dangerous and you needed to get into car racing so. well I think secretly she did worry about the bike racing and, and uh, but mm -hmm. what happened was someone approached uh, probably in conversations like that you know they said well why doesn't he have a go at car racing so they they ran a car racing school in France which was famous for bringing on French Drivers, they wanted to see if any British drivers would would succeed because they offered a scholarship. If you if you won it, you got a Formula Renault sponsored Formula Renault season, and then if you won that, you got a sponsored Formula Three season, and that that's how they produced Jack Lafitte, Rene Arnoux, you know Patrick Tombay, Alan Prost. They all went through that Winfield School. So he offered a trip for me to go out. My mum said, "Do you want to do this car racing?" I said, "Well, not really, and I'm not paying for it because all my money goes on my." Bike. She said, well, it's free. They'll... I said, okay, well, I'll go. Then, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, no, so I don't really want to go. The, oh, okay. The, free. How old were you at this point? I, I, again, I was about 40. No, I wasn't. But I was about um, 23 at that time. I, I went on this thing and I literally had no idea what they were talking about. And I kind of, I butted up with a guy from Cars and Car Conversions, a journalist called Peter Crisp, because he was funny, you know, he didn't take it, he was there as a yeah. journo, he wasn't taking it seriously. And so, oh, we just had a laugh, you know, yeah, together. Yeah. But everyone else was so intense about it, you know, and I was thinking, this, these people are mad, you know, yeah. what, what is this mm. all about? But as you said, the competitive thing, it was interesting because I did well. They said, you've done well enough to come back for the semi-finals or whatever it's called. Mm. And so, mm, okay, mm, interesting. So I went back and I didn't get through to the final. And the guy who ran it, Mike Knight, said, the interesting thing was that you were so pissed off about not getting in. He said, that was the interesting thing about me being there. Is that it wasn't that I loved doing it, it was I hated being... No, not good enough. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, and so, so I think that kind of motivated gave you yeah. drive. So no, but but I think you need that kind of drive, don't you? And in order, like, like in anything, if you if you really really want something, mm. you can obsess. You can you, you can make it obsess happen. Obsess over it, but you have yeah. to make it happen. Nothing really ever lands in your 
yeah. in your in your play. You get opportunity maybe because of your name. Yeah, there was there well, was definitely the doors open. I would say, yeah. given who your father but was, they were in. they were looking to see if yeah. you could emulate if you had what your the talent your father had and the drive that he had. To be I think that, that's always I won't, I won't say a problem, but it's because it does open doors, as you said. You know, opportunities come your but way. But you have but to try harder. Pressure you, as well, isn't it? Not? You yeah, you have to. Yeah, you have definitely. to show that you are worthy of that opportunity mm. more so than anyone else because there'll be other people out there who will never get that opportunity. They will, they will be furious if you wasted that opportunity yeah, yeah. and they, they would always say you don't deserve it. So you're conscious of that. That's what all you can say. Mm. I mean, my first race in car racing was on News at 10. You know, wow. I was totally unprepared for yeah. it. I was totally out of my depth. They can care it, less when you were racing bikes. And, and it was just massive story. You know, Graham Hill's son's going to start mm. racing and I looked like a complete idiot. I was on the back. They they had to let me uh, spun out. It was a mess. I mean, it was so embarrassing. Oh, that was when you were yeah. doing Formula... That was the, grand, the Grandstand Formula 4 2000. 2000, yeah. Yeah, the Winter Series. Yeah. Yeah, it's a crazy, a crazy thing to do, race motorbikes, but um, it was fun. It was fun. Yeah. I survived it. I was pretty lucky, really. And, was, no, and no, no, no big... Injuries either, did you? I mean, got, got spat over the handlebars at Lydon Hill and landed on my head, which is lucky I didn't break my neck, but I got a broken collarbone from that. Mm. But um, Do you still own uh, a 916? Yeah, I've still got that, yeah. Barry Sheen got me these bikes. He said, oh, I can get you. An, um, so he got me a Monster and a 916. And I said, what, Barry, why are you doing this? Why what do I have to do for it? No, nothing. No, you don't have to do anything for it. I was going, no, there's a catch here. There's something that's got to be a catch. Anyway, so he got me this 916 back in 95, 916 or something like that. About that. Yeah. yeah. I've had them sitting around. I hardly ever ride it, to mm. be honest. But it's, you, were, you were out on the DGR with us last, last year, yeah, weren't I, you? Yeah, I got that going. He was, was a great like, marshal, actually. He, we, we went out and we, we did the DGR... DJI ride. Well, it was um, in Guildford. Yeah, and uh, and he was you know getting out in the middle of the road, stopping cars. I thought it was a policeman. Yeah, kind of what I, what I'm interested in, David, is is there'd be a lot of easy assumptions to make about your career in racing and the legacy of your father. But there was obviously there was a lot going on, and and he wasn't around from the age of 15, so you sort of went into bike racing yeah. um, without with you know. Yeah. without a father there to guide you and especially one, yeah. you know, who knows what may have happened if he was still around, if he'd gone into cars or whatever, you know, we, we can't say. Cause. He actually said in an interview once that he thought I was too intelligent to become a racing driver. So um, I managed to prove him wrong. Not just that you started racing motorbikes, which arguably is oh, a less I think if he would have been unbelievably riding. proud of you looking down. Yeah. During that period, you know, your, your late teens and your 20s, were you sort of conscious of the circumstances that you found yourself in? Was there a, a, hmm. an awareness of that or were you just yeah. a, a, um, a single-minded mission to have fun and no, considering no, I mean, everything else? Where was your mind at at that point? Well, I think um, like every teenager, you're trying, you're trying your best to make sense of the world anyway, you know, whether you've mm. got your parents there or not, you know, and I think that there is this generation gap. Even if my dad was alive, would I have agreed with what he'd been saying, what he was saying, or, you know, I mean, I did totally admire my, and, you know, love my dad. So I can't imagine myself standing up to him and saying, well, I'm going bike racing anyway, whether you like it or not. I'm not sure I would have had mm. the, the gumption to do that. But then how could he have said no? You know, like he, he did all this as yeah. well. So, so I'm not, we never got that conversation going. But uh, bike I, racing was safer. 
and bite rape people. You might, but, yeah, he, he probably would have convinced me it wasn't safe. It wasn't safer. But um, you know, I, if I'd gone into car racing at an early age, I mean, these days they start off as kids. They're, yeah. Their dads and their mums or whatever get behind them. They're age five years old and they get a go kart and they they go karting every weekend. So. Their parents are involved. You know, it, it wasn't like that back then in, in the 70s. It was, you look at James Hunt, he had he went racing against his parents' wishes. So his dad said, well, you're never going racing. And actually, Jackie Stewart's mum said to him, you know, I'll never talk to you again if you go racing. And so she didn't. She didn't basically throughout his career. And he phoned her up to say, I've just retired from a mum. I've just won 99 Grand Prix and I've, <laughs> I've, you know, just retired from winning three world championships. And she said, um, you're best out of it. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was her reaction. So those guys went racing against their parents' wishes because it was so dangerous and it was, it was slightly antisocial in some ways, you know, in that way. Um, I suppose uh, yeah. now, in those days, sure, that the, there was definitely that danger. But nowadays, you know, you look at all these Hamiltons and all these people, and, and people see it as a as a as a it's a potential paycheck, paycheck career, totally, yeah, career thing, yeah, and, and, an and an acceptable career, and 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 you you know look at the the Williams sisters, you look at getting an escape to 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 get yeah. a better life, yeah, to a degree, um, and it, it, yeah, but it's it's, it's much harder than that, though, isn't it? And well, there's but, a, there's a tad, there is a tad bit more money in the sport nowadays. No, no now for sure. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> was back then. Yeah. But when you when you decided to did everything that that happened with your with your life and everything did it all sort of catch up with you once you finished? Yeah, I think I lost my dad. I decided what am I going to do? Well, I, there was no one to look over me and say, you know, my mum was slightly grief stricken. You could you could say that. Yeah, for and, sure. And slightly took her eye off the ball. I mean, I didn't get any pressure from my my mum to do one thing or another mm. you know I could pretty much do what I liked so it was down to me what I did and um, secretly I just thought oh god I have to stay I have to do this school thing I'm not going to go to because uh, the school I went to was academic and they were trying to pump people up to Oxbridge and I wasn't one of them and so I kind of was treading water at school but the moment the moment I could leave and got, could ride a bike I would wanted to take um, in fact my headmaster said to me I hope you don't waste your education on motorsport yeah, well, that was the lead, the parting shot from my school. Um, and when you uh, put those people, they're, they're so wrong. The crap so, your teachers tell you. Again, that was like one of those like those little, you know, stings that spur you on. You kind of go, oh, I mean, you know, how dare you? You know, you, you're just taking, my dad's a world champion, taking all his money to put your, put his son through this school and you're telling him you're not to uh, pursue motorsport. Anyway, so how do you find out what to do with your life and you know I just pursued what I loved doing which was, was, was as I said the racing and the, and the bikes what he, my dad would have said and how would that you could there's no way of knowing mm. other than the fact that I knew his example of how he made his name and how he got into motor racing was just purely because he, he didn't want a secure job he had a secure job at Smith's um, Instruments and he said, I'm giving up my job. And the guys who we work with said, you're mad. It's a you know, long-term, lifelong job here. You've got a pension. And he said, no, I don't want to do that. I want to go off and join the circus. So mm. off he went. And that was my model. That was my role model, what he'd done in his career. Mm-hmm. And it's all in his books, which are really entertaining reads. And, um, you know, he, he exemplified the can-do, I'm going to do it whether you like it or not, spirit. The ghost of him, if you like, was looking over me when I went racing. 
Yeah. He wasn't there, but he was, if you see yeah, what I mean. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And do you feel, I know you talk about uh, in the book and sort of the, almost going through the grieving process when you retired and, and finding time and space to actually do that. Because I guess up to that point, you know, 15 onwards, it was kind of survival mode, school, yeah. job, then into racing. Yeah. And then that sort of catalyzed itself into yeah. cars and all the pressure and everything that mm. then went with that circus of Formula One. How did you come to that point, I guess, that that you maybe started to process that? And mm. how did you cope all the way through that, that high-pressure environments with mm. having nev- maybe never addressed that properly? Well, I think having not having a confident uh, someone who could, you know, give you encouragement and you could speak to privately was difficult and a problem in, in the sense, you know, you need, you need that when you're going through a intense thing like a career in Formula One who do you talk to you can't trust anyone you know you say anything to anyone they'll tell someone and Mm. you know it's so you kind of I was a little bit isolated I had my close friends who I trusted but they weren't as experienced, you know. So if my dad had been there, he would have been able to say, "Look, no, well, don't do that." I mean, I mentioned Barashin earlier. You know, he was he was helpful. He gave me bits of advice here and there. Famously, when Michael Schumacher uh, and I collided in in Adelaide, he just came up to me and said, "Don't say nothing," right? And that was his bit of advice, and it was a really good bit of advice. And I didn't say anything, and and it and it it turned out to be one of these. You know, things in my favour, I think. Um, mm. Similarly to, to what happened in, in Abu Dhabi this year with, with, with Lewis. The other thing was that George Harrison was very into motor racing and he, I could, someone like that, you can, you can confide in because he's not going to, he's not got any goal, you know, that, that's going to benefit him. So, you know, he <laughs> he had people chanting for me in India and stuff like that. So it's nice to have, nice nice. have He sent me a video of these people and he sent me the burnt offerings as well. They made some earth offering and they were all chanting for me to win the championship and um, stuff like that because he was slightly eccentric, George, but lovely, lovely guy. So I had my, my, my friends, but the point is going back to 1975 when my dad died there was no such thing as grief counselling in those days no, if there no. was nobody had mm. ever heard of it you know yeah, yeah. and there was no uh, we just went into cold storage you know a whole family just went shut down couldn't really talk about it my mum was in, in, in mourning we just got on with our lives and kind of ploughed on you know mm-hmm. without realising it but with this kind of heavy weight yeah. that you felt and then so then you kind of get a goal and you get to the end of the goal, you finally make it through, but you don't, you haven't realised that you haven't dealt with it. So when I stopped racing in, in 2000, I literally was conscious that I wanted to take stock of everything because I'd put everything I had into this for 20 years to get to the top and I got to the top and I got out in one piece. Yeah, so I got to this point, cool. you know, the haunting thing for me was my dad had been through a really dangerous career, retired, and then six months later he was dead. You know, so he'd given up this dangerous sport because going to go into, you know, more time with the family, but he was running his own race team, but he was, he was out of danger. That's the way we saw it. Yeah. But then he died, like, less than six months later. And so I had this fear in the back of my mind that some, there was something going to get me, you know, yeah, yeah. and gonna, we're going to go back to square one again. And so, yeah, that when I stopped, it all came kind of piling in on me and I kind of had to... And was that a feeling that sat there yeah, for a long time? I think so. I think it had been there because... You it, just... You, you just, defer it. Yeah. yeah. yeah you and you just it. sort of shut it away 
and yeah. it would when when everything got bad, it would niggle at you maybe and. Yeah, but, but it's almost that sense of relief, isn't it? When finally everything's done, you can actually finally breathe. Well, that was, well that's the point. It's that, it's that feel. I didn't want to let myself relax because mm. I, I thought, you know, when you're racing, you've got to be vigilant, but otherwise something's going to get you. And mm. when you haven't got the racing, what do you look, you know, it's like... Then then your brain yeah, starts to yeah, take over, right? You don't, have, you don't yeah. have... When you're busy, you don't have time to think, yeah. right? Yeah. But then all of a sudden, you find yourself with, with nothing to do. Yeah, it's a All of a sudden, mechanism. your brain starts going... Yeah. In overdrive, and you start thinking about all this stuff that you have. But you have to, you have to go through time. that, though, don't you? And to a degree, you've got to. Yeah, there's yeah, a kind of stop, and you've got yeah. to. you got to find deal with it the at some stage. I remember yeah. losing my sister. I didn't deal with it for for a long time, and it, it was only ages later that I mm. had time when I was doing long way round. Had actually time to actually grieve for right. her, yeah. you know. And did you talk to someone about that? I mean, or was it done internally? No, I just done internally. And yeah. I remember, I remember, I, I, yeah, I took a bit about it to friends and stuff. But but I, I remember sort of sitting on the bike, you know, and because and, you had a lot of time, mm. you, you had, and all comes flooding back. And I remember definitely having a having a, a cry in my helmet and, mm. and and stuff a few times, and and felt better for it in mm. the end, you know. Yeah, I think I think this is it is the it is a process grief and it can some if it's not dealt with it can become anger as well now we we do have professional people you can sit in a room with and say this is what i'm feeling this is what i'm confused about and so forth that's that's eventually what i did is eventually i went you know this is not making any sense i can't i I, i've done everything it's supposed to be good why isn't it good (laughs) what have i done wrong and i and i gave up on trying to work it out i I said i need to go and speak to someone because this is this is not how I expected it to be. What did you learn from that process? What were the the triggers? What were the tools that that you put in place to to manage that and deal with it and, and you know, maintain? I don't know what it is. It's I think it's I think it's simply someone hearing, just getting your, it out, just getting it out yeah. of your head. Well, because you know we're sitting here four guys, and we know that if we were in a pub or something like that, or something. If you were to say something, mostly what would happen, it would be turn into a joke. Yeah. And he'd laugh at laugh, but it's not resolved, mm. you know, because actually it's not a joke, you know. It's it's quite often with people who have serious depression that it's, they go home and then it just all becomes too much. Yeah, yeah. So we, you know, who in those moments do you go to? Because if you can't, if, you're, if your mates aren't able to have those conversations, and let's be honest, we don't really want to have those conversations in a social setting because mm. we don't want to bring everyone down. We try yeah, exactly. and bring everyone up yeah, again. Yeah. Or, you know, so, so, but there comes a time when you have to say, okay, no, there is something serious I need to talk about. With therapy, what you do, there's this thing called transfer. You, you know, quite often what we do is, you know, you, you, know, you know it when you're in a group, when you're in a group with people and someone's, there's this bad vibe. You yeah, know, yeah. it's sometimes it's, the person that has this, they're giving it out. Yeah. To mm. And so what the therapist yeah. does is he goes, I I know you're giving it out, so I can feel it. Yeah. But they kind of deal with it and then they they don't accept it and they give it back to you, but in a way that you can you can see mm. and, and say, Okay, whoa, wow, I don't want to be that person giving yeah. that, that bad vibe out. Yeah, yeah. How do I get rid of that bad vibe? Where did it come from? And stuff like that. So it's an inter- a very interesting experience. And it's such a relief as well, isn't it? Once, once you've talked about it to to to, the, and you get it off your chest, you decompartmentalize it. Yeah. it. Your that 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 pressure of relief is strong, isn't it? Because you you can accept it. 
yeah. you know. Or you can, or you can also allow yourself to feel sorry for yourself because mm. quite often you don't mm. allow yourself. Yeah, yeah. You know, we go, I mustn't feel so. I don't want to, and you don't want to complain to other people. But every now and then, in the in a in a therapist room, you can you are allowed to, you know, sob your heart out for. Poor old Damon Hills, when he was 15 years old, his dad died. Yeah. You can kind of go, because actually that's yeah. not you now. That was that was you then, but yeah. you never did it. Mm. Yeah. You know, so you go, poor kid, what's, you yeah. know, it must have been awful. And nobody, he didn't have anyone to talk to. So you get all that. And also you can, you learn to, <laughs> you learn to articulate and yeah. talk about yeah. what you're, you know. Such and I could sit here talk. for an hour and talk for an hour. I'm sorry. Yeah. But I mean, I yeah. learned to talk about stuff. Well, I was I was exactly the same. I'm like Charlie in that I had testicular cancer, but I'm better than Charlie because I got it twice, which makes me competitively more <laughs> special. And more of a survivor. More twice of, yeah, twice twice a survivor. yeah, double survivor. Yeah, but I've yeah. got one nut and he's got none. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> they call me Benny No Nuts. Yeah, yeah. But I, I didn't deal with the diagnosis at all, and it, mm. it doesn't... Yeah. Trauma, whether that be through grief or serious illness or whatever, is, is trauma, isn't it? And it manifests itself in, in similar ways, and... I hadn't dealt with anything the first time around. I was depressed and couldn't see it, didn't understand mental health at the time. Then I got it again, and it affected me a lot for, for years. And well, when I met you, I, you were, in, you were in, a, in a terrible way. Yeah, I was, really. Yeah. I and, still and, didn't even really understand You didn't understand why. it then. And, yeah. um, I remember bringing you along to um, November, and and um, and you, you, were, you were lost, I think. Yeah, and I thought I, that I, by I talking about it, that was that was enough, but I was talking about, disease I wasn't talking mm, about, about how I was doing about my mental health how I was feeling yeah. and I was fighting everything because I'd had to fight through chemo I'd had to fight a diagnosis and try and beat cancer and then f get through chemo and try and beat that and deal with, with, with and with, I'd never stopped fighting because yeah. I was just in this completely confrontational mindset that I just had to take everything else on and I ended up going to counselling and it, it changed my life yeah. because it I learned how to talk yeah. and share my feelings and deal with what I'd been through. But the, one of the biggest things the counsellor ever said to me was, have you ever congratulated yourself? Yeah. Like, for like what? When, they, when, you, when you hear for, that. For what? Yeah. what? What have I done? Yeah. It's like, well, you've Amazing won. Amazing stuff. Yeah. you won. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to fight yeah. anymore. Yeah. I'd rather have a fist fight, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd fight anybody in the street rather than have that, to be fair. Yeah. Yeah, I would. I'd rather get run over. <laughs> it's not in our... We're so... You know, if you're in a fight, mode you don't allow yourself to congratulate yourself or you know or, yeah. or be kind to, to yourself because you think that's going to be undermine you, know, you in yeah. some way and, and, but yeah. it's it's interesting because i think if you have trauma in your life at some stage it can be quite dangerous because sometimes that trauma can define you and and, yeah. and you can't yeah definitely you yeah. can't you can you can never get past that anymore and 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 you know the what ifs and if only and maybe if dad had had taken off a minute earlier or a minute later I don't know you know all those things go in your mind but 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 at some stage you have to actually accept accept the fact that mm. it's well, happened and there's as, nothing you can do about it as Ant bizarrely said earlier you're not going backwards yeah no that's yeah me and Georgie had similar experience her um her parents split up when she was younger so none, none of us knew what happened <laughs> after, after 40 whatever yeah. it is three you know uh, to people's lives because we never I, we, our, neither our families got that far so we had kids and we wanted and you know we, kind of, we were we were shooting in the dark a little bit but you'd mentioned a little bit something that to do with um, your sense of identity you know is is shattered and 
attacked, if you like, if something un, you know out of the ordinary happens, like you get a, an illness, is this edifice that you that you, we have, we create of ourselves, suddenly becomes altered, and you know it's rebuilding. Part of it is rebuilding a, a sense of or finding out who you really are rather than the person that you kind of created. Yeah. You know, the Superman, you know, the the bullets bounce Mm. off, you know. Did you find that being a father helped with that? You know, the grand kids don't care that you're a Formula One champion. They um, just care that you're daddy, right? Completely. And they they are, so that is, that's great. But then, you know, eventually they're going to grow up. (laughs) (laughs) You're a fake. (laughs) 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 And, uh, but I mean, I've got, I got Ollie who's got Down syndrome and he doesn't care anything to do with you know about you know anything I've done in my career and my kids are great as well so they they always accept me for being the idiot I am so mm. and your nice. wife is long suffering long suffering Georgie you know. um who long since gave up on you know expecting great things from me and you know, <laughs> <laughs> I put the bins out now and she's as long as I do that she's happy she's I think, I think yeah. we all yeah. need to find someone like that in our lives <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm sure it's, Ollie's it's given. Been, She's it's, about it's, you. it's lovely. It's, I mean, I've known you for a few years now, and, and it's 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 a very nice unit that you have mm. with them. Um, oh, thank you, with yeah. Georgie and the kids and, and stuff. It's it's very env- it's very enviable. Is yeah. that the word? Well, you you are. Uh, long You're doing all right yourself, yeah, Charlie. You, you I was going to I was going to say I think looking around the table, I think everyone is, yeah. is done, a, all right. is done all right. Kind punching of, above our weight, um, punching above our weight. You know. It's 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 a work in progress, isn't it? All of it. You know, it's not something that's ever done. It's something that you kind of always, every day. There's not adjusting. a blueprint. No. And the only the only regrets I have are, are the motorbikes I sold. <laughs> really? Mm, yeah. You can you got, okay, back. which bikes yeah. have you sold that you would have you would like to have kept? Uh, the, the Honda XR six hundred R. I wish I kept that. Uh, my yeah, that's an off-road. An off-road yeah, big a, old beast it was, and that that thing, thing that thing you couldn't walk up to it and get on and. Kickstart it. You had to, you had to sneak up, <laughs> jump on and start it really quickly, and then it would start. But if it knew you were coming, <laughs> yeah, three never start. ever start that little puppy. That and uh, G6R750, the Strad. Damon Hill, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been my pleasure, and I hope it's been interesting to your listeners and viewers and. Well, it's been great and for me, can, and that's uh, all I care yeah, about. So, yeah. good. I've loved it. It's, it's always a pleasure talking to you, Dan. Do I get paid? No. No. Oh, Char- Charlie's just friendship. Char- Charlie's rich. Oh, yeah. So, what? Beyond belief. I can't believe it. Dimmons are a Formula One driver. We have saved. I have a sausage roll in my bag. You're welcome to it. <laughs> I'm vegetarian, so it's very kind <laughs> of you. Of course you are. Yeah, uh, but, um, no, I've got nothing for you other than, than my heartfelt thanks. I've got a glass of water, and it's been great fun. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to The Nod, a mindful motorcycle podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. Do make sure you subscribe to get your alerts when the next show is released. Head over to our webpage, motorcyclenews.com forward slash The Nod, where all the links to previous episodes can be found. Don't forget to buy your Nod coffee to drink whilst listening to the next episode. We'll be back next week with another guest from the wide world of motorcycling subculture, Join us next time, and until then, stay safe, be kind, and check in with a mate. Motorcycle News.